Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to lend me your ears for this short period in this podcast series where we talk about the experience of collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We talk through the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And we're continuing this discussion thread in this episode of why. Why work with an architect? Answering it in two ways. What do architects do? And why do architects do what we do? On the topic thread of what architects do, in the sequence of the episodes to date, we are at a point, a milestone in the project evolution that is unique when compared to all the other milestones. So where are we at? Got the concept design approved or largely approved. It's looking good. Let's go ahead and return to look at cost. That's the way I move things. And many of my colleagues, we take stock of where the project's going cost-wise. And we do a budget estimate. And from the budget estimate, if things are looking okay, then we move forward to this stage, which is unique when compared to those stages and unique when compared to the stages after this stage, which might be construction documentation or tender documentation for a builder, a builder starting on site and of course finishing. Those stages involve a collaboration, a design collaboration with all the design members. So the structural engineer, the hydraulic engineer, the builder, the client, many other design team members. However, at this stage, we're not, sorry, we are still working as a team, but we're submitting that response, that design response to the client's vision. We're packaging that and submitting it to a development consent authority. And that development consent authority has a different focus, a focus that's not, okay, does this design respond to the client's vision? And in that sense, this stage is a little bit potentially scary. There's an element of uncertainty. We don't necessarily know how the other end is going to receive it, what they're going to say. Yes, no, maybe. But in order to understand the DA process, we've got to understand the DA team, the assessment team a bit better. And so in this episode, we're going to have a little bit of a prologue leading up to the episode after this. We're going to talk about the DA process in general in very broad concept terms, the town planning application process, the development application process in broad terms. And then we're going to dive into a little bit of empathy, understanding where the assessment team might be coming from. And this is a good lead in to the next episode where we're going to talk to someone that has background in 
being an assessment officer. That's the way that she would, was trained. We're going to talk to a town planner about the assessment process and get a lot more technical. However, in this episode, we're going to talk about concepts because we're understanding what architects do and what do architects do? What does the design team do at this phase? Okay, so going back to DA, DA, what is a DA? We hear the term thrown about. I feel like I hear it thrown about in social circles, work circles, outside of my profession relatives, colleagues, did you see the DA they're submitting up the corner? Those guys bought that house. They're putting in a DA quite soon. I saw the DA for the new shopping center. The DA for the Surf Life Club is submitted. What does it mean? In broad terms, what, what, what does it mean? What are we talking about? DA means development application. You're applying to a consent authority for development approval. And so in New South Wales, the piece of legislation that speaks to this, and we're gonna go into more detail in the next episode, but I wanna start somewhere. The piece of legislation in New South Wales that speaks to this is the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act. There's similar pieces of legislation in other states and territories in Australia. This is the state I predominantly work in. Now, this piece of legislation speaks to in the creation of what are called environmental planning instruments, which are essentially rules relating to development. So it starts with the piece of legislation that then speaks to these instruments that go into more detail about the rules. And if we look at these instruments, we start to get into the world of acronyms. Now, in every profession, there's acronym after acronym. And in the construction, development, architectural design world, this phase, the development application phase, the town planning phase has a lot of acronyms, a lot of technical components. There's a skill to understanding that all and understanding the process of it all that can be quite overwhelming for most people outside of the profession doing this for what is probably the first time, if not the only time. And I'm sympathetic to the fact that that comes with a level of uncertainty. In episode one, I said I have this passion, this interest to beat the bully. And in episode one, I said the bully is not an organization, it's not an institute, it's not a person, it's a concept. A concept of uncertainty, of doubt. Is this the right thing to do? What is a development application? What is a, uh, I'll insert acronyms at a later point. What, what do they mean? How do I work through them? Who's going to help me? And I'd like to think that your design team are the people that are helping collaborators, clients, and the like, to remove as much uncertainty, as much risk as possible in collaboration. So in this legislation, we start with the first planning instrument, which has an acronym, and the acronym is SEPP, a SEP, a State Environmental Planning Policy. Now, by and large, the development applications 
relating to the projects I speak most about in these episodes being alterations and additions to an existing residence, a new dwelling from a knockdown and rebuild or on a freestanding site with nothing on it, a commercial or retail hospitality fit out, change of use, an apartment fit out, they won't necessarily have development applications that reference back to a SEP, not necessarily, and I'm I'm going to qualify this a little bit, because there are SEPs out there that do pertain to those development types. However, by and large, we're talking about the other instruments. However, before I go into the other instruments, I want to just make a note that there are alternative pathways to a development application. And that's why the SEP is important because under one SEP called exempt and complying developments, you can see whether the development you are proposing can be done outside of a development application. And there's two pathways there. It can be exempt from development application, meaning that you don't need to submit it to a consent authority, or you can go through what's called complying development, where you get approval to develop much quicker than you would through the alternative, which is a development application. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail on that. It will probably feature in another episode. Work with your architect, work with your design team to see if what you're proposing in part or in full can be done under those alternative pathways through this state environmental planning policy instrument. Now, putting that aside, LEP. An LEP is a local environmental plan prepared by the Minister for Planning and the council where the development is proposed. And it usually speaks to quantitative items. How big, how much floor space, how tall. It also speaks to zoning, as in what's permissible on a given site. Industrial, residential, if it's residential, what's the level of density? Commercial, institutional, recreational, etc., etc. Now, when I say the minister, I mean by extension the minister's team, which is the Department of Planning. The minister themselves is not writing these instruments for all the development consent authorities out there. Their team are developing it with the council. That's the LEP. Now, importantly, in an LEP, we'll go into more detail later in the next episode with a town planner. However, I just want to make a note that in the LEP, all the controls have an objective and an actual control listing. The objective is the principle of the control. The numerical control listed after that speaks to actual metrics and numbers. Important to note on some sites, for whatever reason, if you can't achieve the numerical control, but you can argue that you're meeting the objectives of that control, 
council, sorry, the consent authority, the development consent authority might consider it. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, but it's important to note. Then we have the next planning instrument is a DCP. The DCP is a development control plan and it's prepared by the relevant planning authority and usually speaks to qualitative items like materials. Some councils are even so specific that they describe the proportions, the exact metric sizes of a dormer on the basis of that council believing that is a quality that they want to maintain in certain heritage areas. Um, there's also still quantities like, in a way the dormer has a quantity component, like what's the size, but there might be things like the extent of landscape area, soft and hard landscape, the extent of solar access, direct sunlight you need to maintain to your property and the adjoining property, the proportion of a fence that is solid and then above that height, say it's a third from ground up solid, and then two thirds after that, it's got to be open for 50%. That will be described in these DCPs. So they have qualitative items in addition to quantitative items. And again, they'll have objectives and they'll have actual controls. So these are the rules. These are the rules that are listed from this environmental planning and assessment legislation specific to each development consent authority. Who are the authorities for these DAs that we're talking about? Well, whilst you can have development applications that need to go to other consent authorities, today we're really focusing on local government areas, your council, the organisation that you pay your rates to, that you that collect your bins. For example, in New South Wales, in the Sydney metropolitan area, we're talking about Randwick, Waverley, City of Sydney, Wallara, Northern Beaches, North Sydney. In uh, the greater Western Sydney area, we're talking about Wollongong, Blue Mountain City Council. I forgot Inner West, yeah, within Sydney metropolitan. Then moving outside of Sydney, I'm a coastal person, so I speak a lot to coast and councils and work a lot with councils around New South Wales coastline. But north of Sydney, we're talking Newcastle, we're talking mid-coast, south of Wollongong, we're talking Kiama, we're talking city of Shoalhaven, etc., etc. They're the authorities. So they're the instruments written partly by the Department of Planning, depending on the instrument, and the consent authority that is the local government area to whom we're submitting the documentation. But what are we documenting? What is the package? What's the design team doing? Well, remember from previous episodes, if you've listened, the focus always is a developed design as we move forward in stages. And that design focus is a response to the client's vision. It's what we're always doing. At the concept design, it's broad brush. Now we're starting to channel and focus it more 
develop it more, add layers of detail, add layers of information. However, that's still in broad terms what we're doing. And now we're adding input from, sorry, input from other design members, from consultants, as required for that submission. Now, what consultants might we need? No idea. Talk to your architect, talk to your design team, see for that project what's required. Council on their website will have a checklist of what is required for certain development and you'll be able to work through that. But it might include a heritage impact statement by a heritage architect. If you're in a heritage conservation area, if the project you're working on has heritage listing, then you'll need some advice on that and a report on that to speak to the important elements on a heritage level in the area on the project itself, elements that need to be maintained and develop the design in line with that advice. You might need a structural engineer to comment on various things like the imposed load from a first floor addition, if that's in fact what you're doing and whether the existing building can take that load. That structural engineer might require that you get some geotechnical advice to talk about the below ground conditions and whether they can take the loads imposed from the proposed design. A land surveyor to plot out the property boundaries and location of elements, the building to boundary, the existing building to boundary, the new building to boundary, the fences, the neighbors, you might be in a bushfire area, so you need some bushfire advice. You might be affecting some trees or you might have some trees that are not going so well and an arborist provides a report there. There might be evidence of previous industrial use on the site and so you might need someone to talk about remediation. You might need a hazardous materials expert. You might need a stormwater concept plan from a hydraulic or civil engineer to talk about the way that rainwater goes from your roof and your gutters to your ground to council's assets. Again, this is not a definitive list. Talk to your architect, talk to your designer. The last one I want to mention though is a town planner. And as I mentioned before, we're going to be talking to a town planner in the next episode. One of the benefits there's numerous benefits of having a town planner on your team, but one is that they understand the focus that the assessment team would have. One, because they've trained the same way that the assessment officers are trained. The assessment officers being the team that assesses an application submitted to a development consent authority. So they're trained the same way that they are. And by and large, some of them, a lot of them, once worked at the at council. And so there's a real benefit to having them on your design team. And they would provide advice along the way and ultimately prepare what's called a C, an S-double-E, a statement of environmental effects, a planning report, confirming compliance with the instruments that I listed previously. So that's all a design focus with a collaborative team packaged together, ready to submit to the consent authority, the development consent authority. Now, important point before we move on. We as a design team, even with 
advice from experts that have done this before and having worked in councils before or this area before or with these controls before, I actually have no idea how council are going to respond to the application. We take best endeavors to streamline the process to get ultimately an approval. However, we can't guarantee it. Council are a political organization and we don't know what's happening at the other end. We don't know that even with full compliance with all the controls in the instruments I described, where the council might say on this site for a particular reason, they cannot support the application as proposed, i.e. make amendments, or they can't support the application full stop. So consider withdrawing it. We don't know. We also don't know even if council are in support of the application, whether the neighbors, the community at large might put in what's called a submission, which is an objection to the proposal. We don't know how many of those we're going to get. We encourage all clients, collaborators to maintain good neighborly relations. However, the expectation from most landowners is that the property as purchased will have the same level of amenity and the same qualities relating to neighbors from the day they sell as per when they purchased, i.e. nothing will change. And if there is change, there's concern. And with concern comes the democratic right to object. We don't know whether the neighbor's going to object. And so whilst we undertake best endeavors to minimize that risk by working through things, we don't know. And here's the other curveball. So if we know that even with full compliance, there might be an issue, either with neighbor or with council, let's ask a different question. Does full compliance on every project, every time, result in the best response to the client's vision necessarily? Remembering that we've got an opportunity to say, if we don't 100% meet a particular control, we're off by a smallish amount or whatever amount that your team says is fairly minor in the scheme of things. Could we argue the case that we meet the objectives and therefore trying that on is justified because the alternative is a compromise to the design? So let's give an example of this. I have my clutch pencil in hand because I find it very hard to talk any lecture or, or be a teacher, tutor, or certainly run podcasts or speak in podcasts without my clutch pencil in hand. We, a colleague and I are working on a project in North Bondi, Sydney, and it's a semi-detached terrace. Now on my page, my A4 page, which I've rotated to landscape format, Normally how I draw things is landscape format. I'm going to draw a rectangle that runs landscape wise. So it's longer than it is wide. Just imagine this in your head. And when we say semi-detached, what that means is in this case, the bottom line of the rectangle I've drawn is a wall that is shared with a property next to that 
terrace. In this case, I'm drawing another rectangle to the bottom of the rectangle I just drew. And that's what we mean by semi-detached terrace. Now I'm going to draw circles to the right and to the left, a bit bigger one to the left, to describe the street to the right and then the rear open space to the left. And north is towards the front of the property to the right. So the streets to the front and the rear open spaces to the left. But with north towards the front of the property, what that means is that the rear open space is getting no direct sunlight. And also the situation that is preferred in most houses is to have the main living space towards the rear of the property so that you can have direct outlook and access to the rear open space. And so the problem now, if you're imagining this rectangle, is I've got a rear open space and a main living space that receive no direct sunlight because it's south facing. Now, if you extend things a little bit, you can appreciate that there's a side passage towards the top of the rectangle, which allows external access independent of going through the house. And that is a margin, let's call it a margin of about a meter before a side fence. And then another meter after that fence before the adjoining property. So there is an opportunity for some Western light to hit that, that face. But because the adjoining property is pretty much less than two meters away, it doesn't really happen. So my colleague and I at the concept design phase, we thought, well, we've got to do something about this. What can we do about this? There's also a development control that says you need to maintain a certain amount of hours of direct sunlight to the main living space. So in a way, not doing something about it was non-compliant with uh, control. Now, not to take away from any of the development on the street, but by and large, as far as we can tell, every other development on the street has said, well, this is the nature of the orientation of the lot and there's not much that can be done about that. Well, my colleague and I said, looking at street view and real estate plans, and then going to site and meeting the client, we've got to do something about this. And the something that we considered is what's called an internal courtyard. It's a common design response to this problem. It means that if you imagine the rectangle, somewhere near the middle of that rectangle along the length, um, we cut a hole and we make that hole external space. And what that does is it means that Northern Light can enter the rear of the building now because we've cut a hole, providing direct sunlight to the main living space. And we thought, okay, what's the problem here? The problem is that when we add the first floor, the first floor setback controls and height limit controls require that the rear building line, the rear wall line of the first floor addition be set back from the rear wall line of the ground floor. Now, remember we got a hole. 
So if you're adding a first floor and that first floor in our case has two bedrooms and a bathroom, normally you'd go bedroom, bathroom, bedroom. But we need to separate the bathroom and that bedroom to one side, in this case, the southern side, because we've got a courtyard and doing that stretches the first floor footprint out to a point where we don't comply with the rear setbacks and we slightly breach the overall height limit. Because if you're looking from the ground floor, you've sorry, from the very, very bottom, we've got lower ground floor, almost flush with the ground floor above it. Uh, it's three story from the rear because of the slope of the site. And then we've got the upper level, the first floor, and it is not sufficiently set back from that ground floor. However, we thought that this was such an important design element that to change it, to remove it, simply to satisfy this criteria that we only breached by a small amount was not worth it, was too much of a compromise to the client's, to the response to the client's vision. And so as a team, we assessed the risk and we argued the case that there was no adverse impact to the adjoining property. And we move forward because it was an important point. And this is what we're doing along the way. Okay, so now I wanna talk a little bit about empathy. And you're gonna to have to bear with me here because I'm gonna draw in pop culture, some of my own interests outside of architecture and it's important to note that whilst there might be holes in what is ultimately an analogy I'm proposing, the direct correlation is less relevant to the idea, to the concept that I'm putting forward. I love distilling complex ideas to, you know, a single sentence as often as possible, so as to make things slightly more accessible. And so please just humor me. This isn't a perfect analogy, but in terms of the assessment team, the assessment officers, what are they doing and what are we doing to help things as architects, as designers? Well, what if we were to imagine, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention, got my show notes here. So now we're talking about empathy and empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Or in an essay I wrote many years ago, I've forgotten where I got this quote from, I'm sorry, but it also means a self-experienced mood or emotion. In other words, by having empathy, we're understanding where someone's coming from. We've been there before, we resonate with that emotion. And so how can we do that for the assessment team so as to get potentially a better outcome? Well, let's think about something that's near and dear to me. Let's think about sport. My family loved watching sport. We were very much a sport watching family. I loved many sports as a kid, in particular as a teenager, basketball. And that's been reignited because of Netflix's Last Dance documentary series about the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls legacy. And so I've circled back to that. And my sister and cousin and I were talking about this the other day. We're talking about referees. I have refereed very amateur community sporting events. I've also judged bodyboarding events, bodyboarding being a type of surfing that I love. And I've sat all day judging people riding waves, a form of refereeing in a way. And 
in all cases, we were discussing this, like the less, the least celebrated person, regardless of the outcome is the referee, the judge. Yet they have such a tough job, a critical job, but a tough job. They're getting these intense athletes upset with a call that they've made and they're standing their ground and maintaining their position. So what if we were to consider the assessment team as referees in a sporting match? If we were to do that, who are the teams? Well, what if we were to consider one team as the general public? Neighbours, the general community, and they might not necessarily be happy, as I've mentioned before, about the change that is proposed with the development, even though it is permissible under these planning instruments with consent from an authority. And then team two is the design team, the client's team, client, architect, designers, consultants, and the like. Now, the referee, going back to basketball, can't be seduced by the quality of Michael Jordan's basket as he leaps up, and I'm going to quote Magic Johnson here, and flies and seemingly keeps going up whilst all of the defenders start to come down. The referee can't be seduced by that or isn't necessarily seduced by that sufficient to say, that was such a good basket. I'm going to give it three points, not two. No, instead they're looking to make sure that he didn't take more than two steps after bouncing the ball or when he received the ball that he didn't take more than two steps, which would be a travel violation, that when he is in the air, that no one is hitting parts of his body in a way that elicits a foul and opportunity to shoot free throws. When Stephen Curry shoots a three from the halfway line, they're not saying, oh, let's give that four points. They're checking to see that the three point was shot within the time frame permissible in the game. And so similarly, we will be quite proud of the work that we've done as a design team. We think the design is great for whatever reason. We think that it responds well to the client's vision and we're proud of it. But the assessment officer has to look past that. Uh, an example for me too is that um, when I'm invited to look at work that builders have done, and I go to the project and I find it really hard to switch off my design, my design um, focus. I can't look at the quality of the build separate to the quality of the design. I find it really hard to separate that. Assessment officers need to. They're not assessing it from the design perspective that we hold near and dear as architects, as designers. They're assessing it against these instruments. Now, I'm the first to admit that I'm disappointed when an assessment officer says, no, change this. We can't support this. Consider withdrawal or we'll have to consider refusal. That's extremely disappointing. And when I get those emails or I get that correspondence, I'm quick to say, I've got to breathe out. I've got to calm down. I've got to walk away. And I've got to say, okay, where are they coming from? 
I subscribe to the idea that people will have heard if you've worked with me before. I subscribe to the idea of responding to what people are saying, not how they're saying it. And so I've got to remove emotion from the situation as best I can. I'm still human. I'm still excited about the process. I'm proud of what we've done. And I don't like it as much as I'm talking about it here when someone says, no, sorry. And so I need to step back. We need to step back and say, okay, where are they coming from? If they say they can't support a particular aspect, okay, in what way? What, what aspect can you not support? And by extension, can you tell us what planning instrument that issue relates to? so that we can understand it. Then we take that back and sit with the team to discuss what we're going to do. We don't say, okay, thank you, assessment officer, we'll make that change without consideration with the design team and particularly the client to see whether this change will be a detrimental change that will mean that we are no longer responding properly to the client's vision. And we may have to do it, but we're not going to do it without first chatting as a team to say, guys, everyone, this is going to result in a compromise. Is that acceptable? What does that mean? Let's consider it. Let's consider that impact. The other thing we're doing as architect, as design team, is we're undertaking best endeavors based on this understanding of empathy and the like to preempt what the assessment team might think. We really have no idea, but based on previous experience with that council or that control at that council or at another council, we're trying to understand the risks. We're also working hard to try and make the assessment officers team easier. Now I can't diminish their workload I've got no control over their resourcing and I'd be interested next week when we talk to a town planner as to how inundated assessment offices currently are or generally are. So that's not how, and we're not doing it necessarily by complying with everything, as I've mentioned before. Strict compliance with everything might result in a detriment to the response to the client's vision. However, what we are doing is clearly outlining to the best of our ability where we don't comply and the argument put forward to say that that non-compliance is okay for whatever reason. No adverse impact to adjoining properties or the public domain, etc., etc. We're also doing other things. We're developing the concept design documentation to include things like information that describes floor space area, landscaped area, we're color coding elements of the drawing to describe proposed separate from existing, assuming it's an alterations and additions project. We're showing height limits on the shadow diagrams. We're trying to show the additional shadow. If we're demolishing elements, we show the demolition on the proposed drawings so you can see where things used to sit, etc., etc. Each architect, each design team does things differently. So talk to them about the way that they do things. But the intention is to make the job easier so that the adjudicators, the judges, the referees can expedite the assessment process and hopefully, hopefully determine things with an approval. 
an approval that is closely aligned, if not fully aligned, to the response to the client's vision. Not just a blanket approval, a specific approval to the client's vision. Now, it's not easy. And as I've implied before, I don't like it when someone tells me that the design is not good, not acceptable, it's poor quality or whatever. Uh, I had a lecturer, a tutor, a good friend who told me a story when they were working on a house of theirs and they submitted it and there were problems. And the assessment officer said to him, he was teaching at the time as well, but I can't believe that someone who designs this teaches at university. I mean, how harsh is that? Anyone, me, my colleagues, any designer, architect would feel very disappointed to hear something like that. That sounds like a personal attack. However, we've got to step into their shoes as best we can, remove emotion as best we can, and say, okay, when they say it's not good design, what's good design as far as they're concerned? It's whether or not we have complied with the planning instruments, okay? So we've got to step back and understand that. And together as a team, we've got to sit and say, okay, what's the risk here? What's the risk of getting an approval if we push this component that strictly doesn't comply? How do we manage that as a team? And that's what your architect and design team are doing. We've got this focus, this focus on design, design response to client's vision. We've still got it at the development application phase. We never let go of it. I never let go of it. I see each phase as a design phase, each correspondence, each team member, understanding the assessment process, understanding the assessment team as a design exercise. Okay, so there we discussed some concepts relating to town planning applications, the development application process, a little bit of a insight into how I like to think about the assessment officers. And we'll be interested to see next episode as to what a former assessment officer has to say about this process. Until then, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate the time spent. If you thought this episode was relevant to a friend, a colleague, a family member, or anyone, please share it and subscribe. Until then, I'll see you next time. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect.